This episode of Super Pulp Science is brought to you by the Chronicles of Era, available at Comixology, Comic Central, and Chapters and McNally Robinson. <sighs> Attention, citizens, it's time for Super Pulp Science. Hello, this is Super Pulp Science, where we talk about how genre is made. I'm here with my long-suffering co-host, Justin Curry. Say hi, Justin. Hi. And we have brought a, uh, another long-suffering um, Winnipeg comic um, aficionado here, Scott Henderson. You can talk into your microphone so we know you're here. Hello. There we go. So I'm just going to ask Scott right off the top just to uh, do some book shaming to the two of us, Justin. All right. Scott, how many graphic novels have you illustrated so far in your career? Luckily, you asked me this earlier as we'd be sitting here listening to me groan and do the math in my head. I've done about 21, 22. 21 or 22. Finished illustrated graphics. Yeah, forgotten any. That is Justin's droopy face lets you know <laughs> that he feels like he has not been working on. Does that? Do you feel like you haven't done enough with your time here on no, this planet? No, uh, yeah, Justin? I feel like I'm 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 behind. I need to do more. All right, yeah. so There's so many I books I want to do. At your conventions and everything like that, and all the prints and everything that you guys do. It's just like, oh well, now I don't feel like I'm doing very much. <laughs> I might be putting books together. So you wish you were doing more shows and making more prints. And you wish you were making more books. Okay, so what is your advice to him to get more books finished? <laughs> um, It'd be good if Justin learned something I'll, on this podcast. And then I'll return with advice to get more there you prints go. done. <laughs> I've been doing so many books, but I've been doing a lot of books for other publishers. Um, and so, and I sort of kind of got a little, little bit of chance involved there because my skills are part of that, but it was also a chance getting in with High Water Press and that the graphic novels took off and did so well that they just keep doing more when did and more Okay, and more. so hold on. Your advice is a little bit of luck yeah. and some skill and then be really successful and then you too <laughs> can make more books. And latch Justin. on to that, uh, um, that publisher and don't ever let them. Don't so ever I, don't, I don't know if I know that full kind of like origin story of um, like how did you initially find High Water Press? How did that first book happen? And then what did that first book do that kind of catapulted into all these other things? Um, and so for the and for the Googlers who are listening along, um, also name drop some of the books that mm -hmm. you've worked on. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so this is going back to about 2009. Uh, well, in 2008. I uh, worked on a, I was commissioned to work on a webcomic called For Valor uh, for a company called ManLab, which doesn't exist anymore. Oh. Uh, and they worked with the Canadian Air Force. So For Valor was a webcomic about the uh, Canadian uh, pilots who had received uh, the Victoria Cross for Valor during World War I or World War II. So I worked on one about Robert Hampton Gray, who flew uh, Corsair in the Pacific and died between the two bombings of Japan. Um, and then I also worked on one for Billy Bishop, who was a World War I pilot. Um, so these were your first? Hold on, I'm just interested. Th those were my first paying jobs, and like those were web comics. So I did the illustrations, and then uh, another uh, couple and that people. that was 2007, 8? 
Yeah, uh, 2008, I think. And yeah, James, you have not no, done enough James with your Van life. Niekirk. I know somebody, one of my other friends worked on that too. Yeah, and actually Nicholas Burns yeah. did also one yeah, yeah. for that. He did uh, Andrew Minarski, I believe. Oh, I've seen these. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So somebody, we did, or at least I did the art for it, and then somebody else kind of did some animation and effects and whatnot for cool. it. And it was... So I started taking I, my I, comics work really seriously around the same time, 2008, 2009. Yeah. So you're way out front. Well, this is the stuff that I'm getting paid for. I was working on my own stuff decades before that. Yeah, as, sort of as we all. For, so say we all. Yeah. Poop and giggles, really. But <laughs> <laughs> You're such a dad. <laughs> well, I also remember, I've been listening to all the podcasts, so I remember like the first one about, you know, maybe... Th- podcast that you can listen to with yeah like when we say so you know words like this is more work bleep for poor dad. <laughs> that's right so um so yeah so i did that one and then through that uh one of the guys that worked at man lab that i also went to fine arts with him and actually one of my, i think my professor through fine arts they both let me know about this this publisher who was looking for illustrators to do graphic novels. So they both let me know about it. And so I was like, oh, okay. Uh, so I looked into it and I submitted uh, some art to it. The And this, of course, worked out to be Porridge Vein Press and their imprint Highwater Press. Um, as the story goes, I guess I was the first or one of the first people to submit art for the project. Uh, and I'm told that they compared everybody else to my artwork. That's so. pretty killer. Yeah. That, what, what what if it wouldn't good. affect the <laughs> podcast, I'd tell you to do a mic drop there, but then you wouldn't be able to hear you. Um, I'm always, what was that submission? What did the submission look like? What did they, like how many finished pages or how many pieces of art or what did, what did they want to see from you? Um, I, I, unfortunately, it's a number of years ago, so I can't remember yeah. exactly what the proposal is. Like, it was sort of just a, it was an open call for artists. Okay. And so, I I ended up submitting. I probably submitted something like five pages, and I actually used. I was working on Chronicles of Era at the time. Mm-hmm. A long, long, long time ago. <laughs> Been working on that Dear one for a long Chronicles time. Chronicles of Era is his creator-owned graphic yes. novel series. Yes, fantasy, sci-fi, steampunk, all that good stuff. Uh, so I submitted them uh, five pages of that. It was with the main character, and he's running through a forest, and there was deer, and he was chasing after the stag, and uh, some other stuff like that going on. Obviously, there was some perspective in there so that they could see that I could do that, too. So just and so they just, overall, they, well, uh, I guess Annalie and probably Catherine and whoever else was reviewing it at the time, and David Robertson were looking at it, and so they just liked the style and everything else that came in they kept going back and saying well we really like this guy That's so you standard. didn't know uh, any of these people beforehand nope okay so this nope. is from the standpoint of um being a person who wants to break into comics right has never done it before has no in you don't know people you don't know anything they don't know you no. you just followed the script submission they had a script page I'm just breaking it down to the small bits because there are people who want to start who wonder how that happens and they assume. Just the five pages. Like, that's what I took away from this is how many people do we know that want to get into comics but don't have five pages to submit? Of sequential art. Yeah. 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 Lots. And that's, I think, that's the one thing that I 
known for all the years that I have been following comic books. Like, I don't get very many opportunities to go to the big conventions where there's Marvel, DC, and all the editors and all that sort of stuff. And But that's the one thing. It's like so many people do pinups or they do a few pages, but they don't necessarily finish a book or they maybe have like a dozen unfinished books sort of thing. And so I submitted the few pages to them, but I had one full chapter, one full 32-page issue of ERA done, and I was working on more of it at the time. I had, I think, another three, uh, another 60-plus pages done at that point. So let, me, so let me pause there. So if you're someone who is making comics just for, as you put it, poops and giggles... <laughs> Yes. Maybe what you're really doing it for, maybe the reason you're putting time aside in your day is so that when the call comes, you have something to show them. You have something to show. You show that you can finish something. Um, it's also, of course, about the variety that you can draw. It's great that you can draw people, but can you draw perspective? Can you draw animals? Can you draw this or that? Or, I mean, it's okay that if you can't draw some things. I'm terrible at drawing things like vehicles and whatnot, yeah. things like uh, uh, 3D Google SketchUp. Um, well, because of my fantasy series, yeah, I, there I is a lot of horses, so I learn. Justin's <laughs> favorite thing to be asked to draw really quickly when we're at signings is horses. Isn't that right, Justin? Well, be, yeah. Be, <laughs> it's like human hands and horses are like notorious for being tricky to draw. Yeah. I'll draw you human hands all day, but Luckily, I don't want to draw horses. Um, when I, I was younger, there was that movie Spirit, mm-hmm. um, the yeah. animated, and at the, in like the DVD extras, when those were kind of like the thing, um, it was the lead animator did like a tutorial on like how to draw horses, and I watched that over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. I think it was, it was one of the big guys. It was like uh, one of the Clements, you know, the, yeah. one of those lead animators. So, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, you can bust out a pretty quick unicorn, I have to say. Right? Among skills I yeah. admire in, <laughs> in Justin, it's the ability to quickly draw a unicorn. That's like the third thing on my resume, can bust out a pretty good unicorn. <laughs> so you submitted raw, unfiltered samples to a publisher in your own city. They liked it. They held on to it. They compared other people's work to it. Fast forward now. The last time I was at the Portage and Main offices, I couldn't help but notice that they have five or six of your pages framed on the wall in there. Yeah, that's a depiction of how it all came to be. Right. In a slightly comical And is way. that Dave Robertson shirtless, like as a superhero that you <laughs> Yes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yes. So for those of you who haven't listened to our last episode, our last posted episode, Dave Alexander Robertson and Scott Henderson collaborate often uh, in the graphic novel medium. How did that become a 15-book cycle for you guys? Well, the the book that I was submitting for ended up being Seven Generations, which was written by David Robertson. And so that was the first time we met. Uh, we met in a coffee shop. He was wearing a Transformer shirt. We talked about Pearl Jam and Star Wars and Transformers, so we obviously hit it off. We yeah. were best buds at the start kind of thing. Um, And, yeah, that's what sort of started it. I I had to put my own projects on hold because at the time I was still working full-time in custom framing. And so I really only had enough time to do one book at a time. So error got put on the back burner. Um, Did you do the stone issue? Yeah. Yeah. The, the Seven Generations, originally it was published just as black and white and 
I mean, they say graphic novels, but they're more like the floppies, so it's four right. chapters. So Stone, Scars, Ends Begins, and The Pact. They've since col- colored it and collected it into one, into one volume. I see. Well, I first it. saw that issue of Stone. My first um, exposure to your work was as a classroom teacher, and there was a student that I had that carried around this tattered comic book in his bag, um, you know, just held onto it like a talisman, and I didn't really know. And he was a pretty uh, quiet kid, tried to keep to himself, you know, he was carrying some weights of his own and we got to know each other uh, after a while. And I said, you know, I, the giant comic nerd in me can't help but notice that in all of your classes, you pull this one book is always with you. And it was a copy of seven generations stone. Mm -hmm. So, you know, no matter how you feel about the project in general, it reached one kid really hard. Like he had a hard time talking about it because it mirrored his own experiences. Yeah. But, you know, is that what you guys set out to do, was talk about hard things for people in tough places? Um, well, I think that's definitely what David started out with. And I uh, have the sense that there's a little bit of autobiography, at least in seven generations for him. Right. Um, I, I mean, I'm ultimately brought on as the artist. I'm the hired work. You're the hired gun. But, I mean, I had to be sort of... I had to be open and interested in learning, which I was. I mean, prior to working on this, I was getting more interested in uh, cultural anthropology and just looking at different societies and how people work and how people work together and how all these sorts of things operate. And so in a very generalized kind of way, I was sort of interested in indigenous culture, but nothing very specific. So this allowed me to get more, uh, sort of hone my, my research on the matter because I needed it for the project sort of thing. Um, and I mean, he, David has written, uh, all his stories have been amazing and uh, very uh, socially important stories. And so I'm, I'm glad to be here for him to help bring those stories out in a visual way. So when you're working on your own stuff, Chronicles of Era, hmm? Um, there is definitely that human element mixed into the story. Yes. But on the surface, I see more um, giant fantasy armies fighting, yes. dragons, steam-powered yep. mech. Yep. Um, all the fun stuff. Yeah. All the fun stuff. So do you find that... Are you well-served by having both sides of those in your creative time? Do you wish you were doing more of one or the other? Um. If you say anything rude to Dave, we can edit it out. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think I necessarily want more of one than the other. I always like my, my sweet spot to return to, to just cut loose and whatnot, is fantasy sci-fi. That's where I always like to go. But I've always really enjoyed all the books I work on, even though they're sometimes different. I really liked um, a couple years later, which is where started where I started doing the illustrations full-time instead of part-time. I was working on uh, the series, some of the books in um, Tales from Big Spirit, uh, which was a seven-book series, and each book, though, is about a different indigenous figure from Canada's history. So the first one I worked on was uh, Sergeant Tommy Prince, who was a sniper during World War II. I liked World War II era, so that was a lot of fun to work on. Uh, 
third one I worked on was uh, about uh, the poet Pauline Johnson. Now, that one had the least amount of conflict. There wasn't really any fighting. There was some allusion to, because she did some uh, poetry about the uh, Red River resistance and that sort of thing. But really, the biggest conflict was between uh, Pauline and her mother and her sister, who felt the way she dressed for her performances and whatnot was unseemly for a young woman and all that sort of too thing. Too much ankle. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Too, her hemline was too low and all that sort of stuff. And, but I really, it, it took place in the late 1800s, if I recall, so I really like that era. And then later on, I realized, oh, well, that's the same era as uh, uh, Alphonse Mucha and the uh, Art Nouveau period, which I was still am really into. So it's like, oh, well, now I can incorporate that sort of style sense into it, which I didn't realize until almost the book was done. <laughs> I fit it in there somehow. Right. Good. <laughs> yeah, love so, that guy. So learning history. While you're making comics, yes, at the same time, very much so. Because has, has it made you more reflective as a Canadian working on all those books? Yes, very much so. I mean, I'm not going to lie. I really, I don't think I knew anything actually about residential schools until I worked on uh, Seven Generations Ends Begins specifically, and then after that, I worked on another one, the Sugar Falls. Uh, which was exclusively again about residential schools. So I don't think I really knew any of the awful things that were done and that sort of thing. Um, and so I, obviously I do my research for the book, but I've also found that it doesn't end there. Once the book is done, I don't really stop. So through social media or news or whatnot, some article comes up about the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And yes, I'm not supposed to go into the comment section, but yes, I dive into the comment section. And so you see all the back and forth there, and that made me think and uh, just sort of try to understand the effect of that, the long-term effect of residential schools. Do you ever wonder when you're in the comment section, in the thick weeds of the comment section, yeah, <laughs> if you should just send all of those people free PDFs of the comics you're working on? Like, that would, might and almost I mean, be like, a good idea. Without hyperbole, so many of those comments come from a painful sense of ignorance. Yeah. Right? Could you, don't you have those tools now? Could you <laughs> not be the justice that we that is so richly deserved in the comment section. I guess that would be one way I could do it. Like, I, I don't engage in debates or arguments or whatnot very often because I'm not fast enough. You know, I can't. I think of my response a day later, a week later, ten years later. Yeah, I often think <laughs> if I was a time traveler, I would be the best at arguments. <laughs> right? It would just be awesome. Okay, so better way to spend your time, I think. Than arguing or time traveling? Well, arguing. Argue time that. traveling is the best way to spend your time, I think. <laughs> Wait a minute, Doc. Uh, are you telling me that you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? But even just a more friendly debate, not necessarily so serious. I'm just, I don't very often engage in them too much because I just, I don't, I have a hard time coming up with a quick enough response and it just sort of stalls, or I just also just throwing my, gasoline my standpoint on the fire, might yeah. be uh, might feel like it's maybe invalid because I can't defend it properly, sort of thing. Gotcha. Whether it is or not invalid is another matter. Okay, so I'm going to ask Justin to defend what could be an indefensible position. See that segue? I'm learning how to do this. <laughs> how was that, Dan? That was good. Segue. Okay. Don't have to edit around you <laughs> quite so much anymore. Yeah, my <laughs> constant search for praise and segues <laughs> is just going to become a feature of the podcast, Justin. 
you are going to tell he scott has already told you how to get better at books just be better than the entire submission become, pile yeah become the template that a publishing company bases all its submissions right. off of so do that yes. first <laughs> right like uh, i said a little bit of chance was involved right. here actually probably a lot okay but. though okay no there was no chance right you did what others didn't do you drew in your spare time you made finished pages right that was sequential art on the page from the beginning to end most people who draw have a half a dozen drawings in a pile that prove that they can draw random things. Storytelling is different. And they're mostly pinups. They're like yeah. non-sequential. That's right. Yeah, I've got about three Rubbermaid tubs. So from it's less luck than you think. <laughs> Filled with that. Less luck than you think. So I appreciate your um, humility. But Justin's entire career is built on luck. So let's... <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. My God. <laughs> Why don't you tell uh, Scott about what you did that no one else does? Uh, like starting off in my career? Yeah. Um, what did I do that nobody else has done? Two and a half jobs. You worked all day I'm at not, Complex. Yes. And then you went home and you're like, oh, I worked all day doing yeah, but we, concept design. We all did that, didn't we? No, we, we don't. We were all working like two jobs. You were teaching and making books and you were framing and making books. and You were video gaming and, and making books? And make, well, not as much making books, just drawing. Uh, the books came later. I never really wanted to make books like off the bat. I wanted to be a concept artist, and then I became a concept artist. And then kind of just through freelance, a book job or two landed my way. And by the time I finished those, I was like, I kind of want to do this. So but off the bat, comics were not my goal. Did we accidentally discover, gentlemen, something about ourselves? That we're all workaholics, and that's what we have in common? I... I think you almost well especially for drawing comic books that's almost what you need which is pretty thankless right like yeah that's something that i've sort of been thinking about a lot lately is just the balance between work and being a workaholic and that that work ethic is so enforced it's rewarded and that's what you're always being driven to do it's like do work do lots of good work and whatnot, and you'll be rewarded. So you yeah. are encouraged to keep working and working and working, but that still has to come from somewhere else. So have you guys ever felt at some point, or do you now, ever feel like there's a risk of that becoming unbalanced, of it actually becoming a workaholic? A too work much of a too good much. thing. And what, where are you taking from, and how does that, what, what effect does that have on where you're like taking from? Fear Family or free time? sleep, whatever that might be, where you're taking it from. The fear of burning out. Yeah. Well, we're all, okay, we're all full-timers now. So it's interesting because we have to roll the clock back to the time when we were doing two and a half jobs, right? Job one is whatever your day job was. Job two is you're making pages basically full-time. And the extra half in there is how do you manage those two things, like trying to separate all the time required for both and still be a functional human being um, is a lot easier now. It's, once I took the plunge to do this full time, um, I was reflecting on this specifically the last two days because for three days in a row, I've stayed up till three in the morning working on comic book pages, not because anyone told me to, but because I was so into it and I felt so fired up that I just didn't go to bed. And then suddenly it was 2.30 and I looked at my watch and I was like, oh, oh, this is probably the time that I should go to sleep. Now, previous 
to doing this full time, I would have gotten up and gone to teach all day the next day. No problem. And then come Saturday or Sunday, I would have had to crash for most of one of those days just to reset the uh, biology. But now I just slept in till nine, got up, did what I had slept to do. Slept in till nine. Yeah. Well, that's sleeping in. <laughs> we're, we're fathers, right, Scott? So you know what it's like. That means you sleep in until uh, sleeping, sleeping six hours when you're a dad is about all there is. We're going to pause for a second because the UPS guy, or no, Canada Post has just arrived. Are you Tony Stank? I got a package in the middle of our podcast. What could it be? What could it be? Our podcast has been interrupted by the arrival. Wow. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited right now. I have to put this microphone down so I can tear it down. That actually looks amazing. Oh, I just got my contributor copy for John Carpenter's The Thing art book. Quick, go to my page. Oh, my (laughs) God. Justin's in here, too, I guess. I was nice enough to tell you about it. (laughs) It's true. I'm only in here because Justin gave me the heads up that I should also be in here. Oh! Hear that? That's like 397 pages wow. of art related to the thing. Okay, podcast is canceled while we look at this. <laughs> I don't know what the hell's in there, but it's weird and pissed off, whatever it is. If I go on vacation with family for more than like two days, I start to get very anxious and kind of antsy and almost like shaky because I haven't produced anything. In more than 48 hours? Yes. Walt Whitman calls that the procreant urge. And he's not always talking about sex when he's talking about that. He's talking about our, like, you know, inherent desire to be creative. And it pushes out of us. And I totally agree with that. If you go, how many, when was the longest stretch of days you went without drawing or writing something, Scott? He's rolling his eyes. He's trying to think. I honestly don't know. Um, When's the last time you went five days without drawing or writing something? Don't even know. It's Years? All, I'm all, I'm probably. Because even when decades, even when I've been on vacation, I'm usually doing. It. I think there's been a couple times where I might feel a little bit burnt out and I just don't do anything. Uh, I play well. When I used to play video games, I'd play video games instead of doing work and all that sort of stuff. But yeah, I don't know what I would do without it. I've like. For the last what 30 years, I haven't, gone, <laughs> I haven't gone five days without drawing or writing something for, like, without hyperbole here either. Yeah. Probably 30 years. And sort of talking about the sort of you getting, you know, the shakes when you don't draw. Uh, recently, when I was looking into things like uh, work addiction and things like that, is that uh, there was one doctor psychologist who sort of talked about that. And for him, because of his own childhood trauma he sort of put everything into his work sort of thing. And he found that when he wasn't working, he was more irritable, he was impatient, he was all these sorts of things. And it's very comparable to uh, other people, like when you have like an addiction or whatever. So it was just very... uh, You know, it's funny that you say that. We're in a dark place now in the podcast, ladies and gentlemen. (laughs) But my wife says that to me. If I'm like kind of in a crap mood, it's either because I haven't eaten... (laughs) Or I haven't drawn or written something that day. She'll just, 
she'll just look at me like you know what just go make something for an hour and then come back you'll be you'll feel so much better mm. but is it because we have a sickness justin isn't that like the best kind of sickness to have though the best kind of sickness to I have is a creative <laughs> sickness i think that could be true oh yeah like oh darn i have this like incessant urge to be productive and and get things done kind I of suppose like it a superpower uh, I guess the reason I was bringing it up is because it, it, it depends. It's like, like anything. Like there is that push and that drive to be produce and to create things and, uh, and to even create lots of it and make success of it. But like anything, anything, there's too much of a good thing. And in the case of talking about work addiction and whatnot, quite often like people will sometimes throw themselves into their work to avoid something else. Yeah, okay, yeah. that's true. Uh, that's so it's, it's all about when that balance becomes, say, you're, it just tips too far to one side or the other. So one of the ways that I think is important to manage work-life balance when you're a creative person and you have you know, deadlines, you have lots of things to do, is you have to manage uh, intrinsic and ex extrinsic motivators, things that come from inside and things that come from outside. So when you're a person with a job and a deadline and a... Um, set of responsibilities, those are all extrinsic. Those all come from outside. Someone is asking you to do something, you've agreed to do it, and now you must do it, and so that's an external pressure, right? Whenever I feel too much of that, too much have-tos from the outside world, I try to balance it by creating sort of internal reverse pressure, right? If I have three or four books from publishers due or three or four projects, rather than say, oh my God, I have to stop everything to work on only those things until they're off my plate. I think your mind does that naturally too. As soon as you get too much client work, you're suddenly like, I have all these great ideas of my own. That's right. And that a lot I of people push that aside. For me, in order to feel healthy, I embrace that. I'll take a day off and just work on that stuff to sort of relieve the pressure, to sort of push the needle in the other direction. Right. And uh, it keeps me a fairly um, balanced individual. But then... Even an imbalanced individual would think they're a balanced individual, so perhaps I'm not the best judge of that. Hmm. Um, how do you guys deal with that? There's just too much external pressure. What do you do? Like from clients and yeah, clients or shows or with with me, I feel like there's such a range of things to do. Like I have books I'm working on, I have prints I'm working on, I have art books, I do um, paper toll, which is a little more crafty. Um, you know, now I'm taking some, uh, life drawing classes and, and kind of delving into 3d, like that Google sketch up a little bit more. Like there's such a range of things to jump around to. Like, I think if I was just doing one thing, I'd feel a little more trapped in that one thing, but because I'm kind of jumping all over the place constantly like so you we're don't doing, want to be too if you were too specialized then it would feel like a yeah, yeah but like we're doing we're doing a podcast among like yeah it's true we're in, juggling so many things in a given week i will do pencil layouts do digital inks do colors do lettering do a podcast episode do yeah. some writing for film do some writing for sorts and inventory sorts and, and inventory that's true <laughs> so it does and then you know that's just the work stuff and then the life balance stuff is you know pick your kids up from school and take them to their you know piano lessons or the swimming lessons or you know wrestle with them like you're a giant robot mecca right any of those things but you have to do all of that stuff otherwise 
Yeah, it's know? about finding the balance. Mm-hmm. But is it balance over time? Like, is that balance that we're talking about? I think maybe it's irresponsible to hope to have that balance in every single day. And what you're looking at is a balance within an amount of time that you can handle. You know, like, maybe it's within a rest cycle. You know, I know that I can have, it can be a super busy day with tons of pressure and lots of people needing lots of stuff. And I can handle that for a sort of a week without rest. But if I have to go into the second week without rest, that's when things start to fall apart. So I have to build that in. Do you look for balance, gentlemen, in a single day or over the long haul? Is it a life of balance we want or a day of balance? If you go like week to week. I find like I'm finding with myself because I have a little looser of a schedule right now, conventions haven't started up. I haven't been taking on any client work because I've got some books brewing. Um, But there's usually at least one day a week where I'm feeling a little overwhelmed just with um, like emails and business stuff and correspondence that I need to kind of tuck myself away and do one day of just concentrating on all the the non-creative things that revolve around this business um, and get that out of the way. So that was actually yesterday. So now today... All I do, all I'm doing, is drawing quackers in the pond with the other animals in the pond. But I find that happens weekly, where I almost like it, it hits a point where I just need to get all that other noise out of the way, so I can get back to the creative stuff. In a glut, I find if I leave it too long to pile up like that, those days are just the worst days. So I've been trying to start my days with the things I least want to do. Mm. Right, so if there's like a correspondence that you normally would leave to the end of the day, I try to open my day with that email. I've been, I might, obviously I've been very prolific with books and whatnot. It might seem like I've got my stuff together, but I think, what was it, in Sam and Claire's podcast, it's really, I'm just a suit filled with lemmings. <laughs> um, and in my case, the I po- sort of the aforementioned of podcast as, is Business BFFs, dear yes, listeners. Yeah. Which is great as well. Mm-hmm. Um, in my case, I think of the lemmings as being rabid and ravenous. So, um, so the things that I'm especially been looking at over the last few months and most recently is because I know that I have a huge procrastination problem, and usually I kind of just shrugged it off and tried to deal with it. What kind of things trying do you procrastinate to about? Actually, uh, ultimately, everything. <laughs> I procrastinated almost anything and everything. How do you get so much stuff done then? By taking it that from last somewhere minute. else. And that's why I'm sort of asking for the balance. Because, I mean, that was sort of the thing. Like, when I was looking into comic artists, you see their process, and you hear how they work, like, eight, ten-hour days, sometimes five, six, even seven days a week. Right. They're just constantly working. And so then the thought is, like, well, where do they have time for anything else? Right. Um, so talking about that balance, and maybe it's too much. Because drawing comic books is a lot of work. Um, and especially depending on how much work you take on or your style and all that. Um, but yeah, I've like, I can enjoy working on something, but I can be very easily distracted. Uh, and so I've been looking at, well, what causes procrastination? Usually it's an aversion. Uh, it's because something's boring or frustrating or you don't want to understand how to do it or any number of these things. And so you have to sort of I have to learn what it is that is triggering me 
or how many of these different things will trigger me at the same time, because it could be boring, it could be frustrating, and it could be uh, lack of investment or something into it. And I have to sort of work around those. Either I have to turn them on their head, make it more fun and challenging, or be more disciplined at saying, no, don't go on social media just for no good reason, right. or to go Can I get a snack for no good reason. So in my secret other life as a classroom teacher, I used to do a fair amount of reading in the psychology related to boredom, right? Because, you know, you've got kids in your classroom and you want to keep them, you know, engaged. Mm -hmm. But really what you want to do is keep them entertained. The, the stuff that I was figuring out that I found the most fascinating to read is that boredom triggered by monotony is actually detrimental to the brain health of a human being, Right. And so boredom, that, that, that tendency for you to be like, oh, this is boring, and switch tracks is an actual device evolutionarily built in to the development of your brain to say, this is unhealthy behavior. Change. It's a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism against the unhealthy behavior, which is to be forced to sit still. You're a person with a body. Bodies move, Right with a dynamic chemical electrical storm going on inside of your skull. It's supposed to think about lots of stuff all the time and be engaged often, right? And when you force a student to sit in one place and do just this one thing, which they are not interested in, and only because you told them to do it, their mind wanders because it's not healthy for them to be present there, right? It's creating bad habits. Right. And so... You just made school sound so like so much more torture than I already thought it was. Oh, it is. <laughs> yeah, I can tell you as a person who administered that torture every day for nine years, and I loved it. I loved every second. I still love it. I love getting up in front of a classroom. It's one of my favorite things. But it's you have to keep people in a place of disequilibrium, not knowing what is going to happen next. You know, as long as it's safe, uh, so that they go, oh wow, that's interesting. Oh, I, I never thought about that before. Oh, right. If you are following a prescribed curriculum that is too stringent, it sucks the joy of discovery out of it. This can happen to us at the drawing table, right? Yeah. Yes, it's fun to be making art all day, but if you're just doing the same strokes, the same lines, the same process then you will be ground out of it. Yeah. And that external motivation pushes on you until you're crushed into a little powder. Why do nitrogen nodules cling to the roots of plants? Um, love? Is that why you find it's so important to have like a couple projects on the go to jump around to? Like you, you always seem to be kind of, you know, a couple big projects and a bunch of little things yeah, going pivot on. A lot. Yeah, you pivot a lot. Yeah, you know, it's a lot of juggling between this and that and the other. Yeah. Also, you know, if we're going to go into uh, some brain psychology and some brain health again, um, neuroplasticity comes from new experiences and new challenges, right? So your brain, you, sh you die into yourself, as, as the expression goes, as your brain gets stiffer and stiffer and drier and more horrible and you get stuck in your thinking ways unless you exercise it all the time by trying new things and trying things that you're bad at, right? Mm. I do a lot of things that I'm bad at, but they're still fun, right? Like what? Things that I'm bad at, yeah. they're still fun. Oh, I sing all the time with my kids, <laughs> like at the top of my lungs. And 
One time I'm singing away, putting my kid to bed and my youngest, Finley, he reaches over and we're lying in bed and I'm just singing him to sleep and he puts his hand gently over my mouth and says, Dad, Mom is really good at singing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, you just gotta, you gotta just do stuff. You just gotta do stuff. I'm a polite kiddo. Yeah. <laughs> so, I think we will leave it there, ladies and gentlemen. You should all try new things. That comics are a horrible uh, experience that will grind you to a powder. But, whether that's true or not, everybody here at Super Pulp Science thinks you should join the fight and make comics. <laughs>